Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. Few things make us smile as quickly as a mom with a newborn. Sadly, there are many potential threats to this outcome. Disease, accidents, and domestic violence may have devastating effects. Protecting Mom. Tonight, on call with the Prairie Dock, celebrating our 20th season. Hello, I'm Dr. Deborah Johnston of the Avera Medical Group in Brookings and host for tonight's On Call with the Prairie Doc program, the celebration of 20 seasons of truthful, tested, and timely medical information. Continuing that tradition is our goal for tonight's discussion. Joining us tonight, remotely from the Twin Cities, is Dr. Lisa Saul of Alina Health, who is also president of their mother-baby clinical service line. And here in our studio on the South Dakota State University campus in Brookings is Dr. Larissa Bennis of Avera Medical Group Obstetrics and Gynecology in Brookings. Welcome, ladies. It's so great to have you here. So, um, Dr. Saul, what is maternal fetal medicine? Maternal fetal medicine is the, the, the field of practice after uh, getting an, a residency and doing training in obstetrics and gynecology, where I and my partners, we focus on complex high-risk pregnancies, as well as diagnosing potential problems that might be occurring with the fetus. So it's taking care of both mom and baby, and it's focused mainly in, in obstetrics. So what drew you to that field? I became interested in maternal fetal medicine during my residency training when I was studying to become an obstetrician gynecologist because I was attracted to the higher risk pregnancies and I really enjoyed ultrasound and, and uh, looking at babies before they were born and trying to figure out what might be occurring in the uterus that could be a complicating factor once the baby was born. And another thing that came up quite often, not only during my residency training, but during medical school, was that it seemed to me that in my, in my coursework and in my training, most things that were complex were occurring in women that looked like me, African-American women or women with an African or African-American background. And a part, a big part of the maternal fetal medicine training is research as well. And I thought it would be a very good opportunity to ask more questions about why that would be. Uh, why would it be that I would be at higher risk for having a complicated pregnancy than my classmates, for example? And so both of those things drew me to maternal fetal medicine. I think that's such an important aspect and such an important part of what I hope our conversation tonight will be about, which is 
why are there these racial disparities and why are they so big? And that's just such a huge question that we need to answer. So, Larissa, what drew you to OBGYN? Well, um, I guess I have kind of been interested in OBGYN for a number of years. Um, while I was still in the process of doing some of my undergraduate training, um, I actually worked at a virology lab, um, and it may sound a little bit unexciting to some people, <laughs> um, but this was kind of when the um, whole um, HPV or human papillomavirus kind of started to come into some of the a little bit more of the forefront of literature and some of the vaccination recommendations and things like that. Um, and so the clinic that I was, um, or the, the lab that I was or affiliated with um, was starting to do some of that testing. And so I kind of wanted to learn a little bit more about exactly what was going on with that. Um, kind of separately, um, I was also doing some um, work with kind of helping out on the labor and delivery uh, unit of one of the local hospitals and kind of the combination of some of what was going on with HPV um, and some of what was going on with some of that labor and delivery work, um, it just clicked for me. Um, it ends up being a field where we get to see women through all aspects of their life. We get to take care of some of the kind of a little bit more boring mundane things with just kind of the well, well woman exams. We get to take care of problem focused visits. We get to take care of um, patients as they get older. We get to deliver babies and we also get to do some fun surgeries too. <laughs> You're definitely a jack of all trades. There. A little bit of everything. A little bit of everything. <laughs> and I think the HPV is, is such an interesting thing. I mean, I remember when I started, before we did the HPV vaccine, you know, it was pretty routine to do cryotherapies mm -hmm. on cervixes and leaps and, and of course, doing leaps would impact um, the risk for moms mm -hmm. and preterm labor and all these kinds of things later on. So that's a big difference. And then, mm -hmm. of course, the um, infection of the HPV under the baby's vocal cords. Yep, so, so the laryngeal cancers. The laryngeal and, cancers yeah. and all those kinds of things. So it's definitely made a big difference in OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine, too, as it definitely has. time has gone by. So that's an important an important uh, preventative step, and of course, prevention is very close <laughs> to my heart as a primary care doctor. So, um, so I want to tell our audience that we are looking forward to answering your questions about protecting the health of mothers. Call us at one eight eight eight. 376-6225, send an email to ask at prairiedoc.org or ask on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. And to encourage your questions, those of you who ask a question during the first 20 minutes of today's program will be entered into a drawing for one of our Prairie Doc gift items. The winner will be announced at the end of this program. Your question will remain anonymous, but be sure to provide your name and contact information when you submit your question so we can contact the winner. So we have a few questions to get started with, and I think that is absolutely fantastic here. One of the things, um, we had an observation from a, a follower, even before the show started, uh, about how socioeconomic class impacts pregnancy-related deaths. And they were concerned that perhaps we were misattributing the disparities to race when they are really accounted for by differences in economic class. What other factors might play a role? And I'm going to throw that one to you, Dr. Saul, because that is 
one of your particular areas of interest? Yeah, I'm happy to answer that question. And I, I would take it back to the things that I was taught too uh, when I was a medical student and a young resident is that there, there did tend to be a focus on socioeconomics in terms of outcomes. And for sure, socioeconomics can play a role in outcomes. And if we think about it in terms of access to prenatal care, ability to, to uh, transportation, housing, uh, those sorts of things can certainly impact the health of a woman and therefore the health of her pregnancy. But what we also know, especially when we look at outcomes and look at the disparities based on race, that once you take, once you factor out socioeconomics and just look at it on the basis of race, outcomes are still worse for African-American women, first Native American women, and sometimes for Hispanic women as well, regardless of their socioeconomic status. And so the studies, there's, there's been many studies that have been done looking at this. And so you have to then ask the question, well, if it is not solely based on economics and um, social factors, then what, what would that be? And some of these, these studies have even looked at women who have immigrated into our country from other countries that might be considered third world countries where the level of, of care would be expected to be better here and outcomes of their pregnancies in the third world country is better than what it is in, in our country. And so there is a hypothesis about that. Uh, there is a hypothesis that the lived experience of being in particular for African-American women, but a black woman in this country, it is enough to produce a certain type of, of toxic stress that's called weathering that can then impact the health and outcome of a pregnancy. And we see it quite a bit in terms of birth weights, where, where birth weights um, are lower in African-American women in their babies uh, compared to their white counterparts, for example. Uh, the rates of preterm birth and preterm delivery are also higher. And the factor for that, and again, that's across all socioeconomic uh, levels, uh, the, the, the unifying factor in all of that is race. And so we, we need to look at some of the things that people experience just over the course of their lives that can contribute over time to how, how the body is just handling that stress and what the clinical, the medical, the, the, the pregnancy outcomes are that are related to that. One statistic that I read um, prior to doing the show was that outcomes for African-American women with college educations are roughly equivalent to the outcomes of Caucasian women who have not finished high school. That uh, is correct. And, and that's, you know, obviously education is not a one-to-one -one correlation with economic status or with class, but it's a pretty good proxy, and I think that's a pretty dramatic 
statement right there. And so when you control for those factors of education, class, money, and you still see those disparities, it's obviously multifactorial. Obviously, a, a Caucasian woman who has not finished high school and is barely making minimum wage has different risks than somebody like Larissa and I who are college educated and have that socioeconomic power, but um, it's definitely something where we need to look at and we need to prioritize the most vulnerable and the people that have the most to gain mm -hmm. from the, that research. So, um, and I would add to uh, marital status, uh, you know, so, so you, you tend to think about um, single parenting, especially when when if, if you're looking at age and, and that and with the studies have also shown that a married college educated black woman, those those outcomes still hold true. So another observation that this particular uh, individual had made um, was that maternal mortality rates have risen dramatically mm -hmm. uh, since the late 80s. So in, in just over a generation, we've seen those rates more than double. Larissa, what, what are some ideas about why that might be? Why have we seen these big increases in rates? Well, and so I think that's part of what we're still obviously trying to figure out from, uh, from what she was mentioning here. It's clear that we don't have the, the complete answer here for things. Um, I think one of the things that um, we have started to notice just population-wide um, is an increase in a num number of just kind of complex health issues. We've got increasing rates of hypertension. We've got increasing rates of kind of now during pregnancy, all of the hypertension-associated types of diseases. So whether we're talking about preeclampsia, eclampsia, gestational hypertension, um, we've got increasing rates of obesity. We've got increasing rates of all kinds of things. And so I think that is one of the factors that they have kind of posited or thought is maybe kind of contributing to some of this. But clearly, um, from some of the research, it looks like even removing some of those other factors, that doesn't give us a clear explanation for where the remainder of that disparity is coming into play. One factor that I'd speculate would be age. Mm -hmm. uh, are you yep. seeing older moms, older yep. first-time moms? Very definitely. Uh, um, increased assisted reproductive, mm -hmm. uh, so you see increasing twins and, and multiple births, and right. that's obviously a higher right. risk. And that's a very good point. I forgot to mention that as well. But yes, I would agree, even uh, from what we see in our own practice, obviously we still have a wide range of ages of patients that we see. Um, but I would also agree that kind of the average starting age for a lot of patients is higher than what it probably was, you know, 20 years ago. Uh, Dr. Saul, could you discuss the difference between preeclampsia and eclampsia? Those are terms that we've kind of thrown around here, and they are—they <laughs> were terms that I used in my essay. So, mm -hmm. can you let's explain that to our viewers? Sure. So, preeclampsia and eclampsia both fall on the spectrum of hypertensive disorders in pregnancy. Preeclampsia. Uh, is defined by blood pressure elevations, protein in the urine, and sometimes that can be associated with symptoms like headache, vision changes, uh, abdominal pain. Sometimes people who have preeclampsia have swelling. Uh, outside of the, the normal swelling that many pregnant women will get in their, in their feet and ankles, um, we call it non-dependent edema, where you have it in your hands and your face. 
Um, and those, those, that constellation of, of findings is what uh, defines preeclampsia. Eclampsia is preeclampsia, but with a seizure uh, activity. So once a patient is presenting with the elevated blood pressures and some of these other findings, laboratory values that are abnormal, that, that, are, that are evaluating the liver and, and other organs, and they have a seizure, it is considered eclampsia unless there is some other reason that that, that particular person would have had seizure activity. And that's a very dangerous condition for mom mm -hmm. and baby. So that's definitely something that your OBGYN will be watching for. Right. A newer risk for pregnant women is COVID-19. So Prairie Doc reporter Carter Schmidt spoke with perinatologist Dr. Rachel Rodell to find out how women can protect themselves and their baby. Dr. Rachel Rodell at Sanford Health says there is not strong information that shows COVID is severely dangerous to an unborn baby. However, that does not mean infection is harmless. Some information has noted that there may be an increased risk of preterm birth or early delivery and an increased risk for the baby to be admitted into a neonatal intensive care unit. Um, there is also some questionable information of whether or not a COVID-19 infection during pregnancy may or may not increase the risk of a stillbirth. Rodel says expecting moms with severe COVID-19 infection could have more serious complications. We have seen an increased risk in things like preeclampsia, which is a condition of high blood pressure in pregnancy. Um, and women with this condition have an increased risk for admission into the intensive care unit, needing help breathing and potentially even needing mechanical ventilation on a ventilator and other life supportive measures like a ventilation method called ECMO, which supports both breathing and circulation. And unfortunately, even an increased risk of death. Rodell says pregnancy is a time where women's immune systems are more suppressed, so COVID can pose a greater threat, a reason pregnant women should get the vaccine. And we encourage them to get the vaccine at any point in pregnancy, and the sooner the better. Dr. Rodell says not many women were included in studies for the COVID vaccine, but thousands who received the vaccine before or during pregnancy were monitored and have now delivered their babies. And through these thousands of women, we have reassuring data that we don't feel that many of the complications we monitor for, like um, miscarriage, stillbirth, um, pregnancy complications are increased with the vaccine. And because of that, the available data demonstrate that from what we know, it's safe in pregnancy and we encourage women to get it because we're not just weighing getting the vaccine or not. There's that risk for severe infection with COVID. Lisa, have you been seeing a lot of pregnant women with COVID-19 there in Minneapolis? We have, and, and with the arrival of the Delta variant, we're seeing our numbers uh, move up. And in particular, as the video mentioned, we're seeing more of our pregnant patients who are requiring oxygen uh, to support their, their breathing, sometimes requiring care in the ICU. Uh, on a ventilator. So I uh, agree with, with what was said in terms of 
uh, vaccination being the best protection for both mom and baby uh, because the risks are not insignificant even in a young healthy population which is typically what we see with our pregnant patients compared to um, others who are who are suffering from this and I think you would agree with that, Larissa. I definitely would. We've been seeing, um, I felt like being in the Midwest, we were a little bit sheltered with kind of the first round of COVID, but I would definitely agree um, that with this Delta variant, we have been seeing more patients that are pregnant that are ill with COVID, but those that are ill are at a higher level of acuity than what we were seeing uh, with things last year. We've got a lot more patients who are having, as you mentioned, the more significant respiratory complications um, here as well. I think we're all agreed, and that is very much in keeping with the recommendations mm -hmm. from both of your national societies, both the American College of OBGYN and the mm -hmm. maternal fetal medicine people. The, it's a unanimous decision, everybody, the vaccine is safe, the vaccine is effective, the vaccine is much be better for you and your baby than is the disease. So get your vaccine. Definitely Don't, agree. There is no, mm -hmm. no concerns, no ongoing concerns about impacting fertility. Nope. Um, it is safe, get your vaccine. And so. I would encourage patients, if they have questions, if there's something that they're hesitant about with the vaccination, if there's something that, as a provider, that we can do to help clarify that information, please let us know. And I think all of us would be happy to answer whatever questions they have with that. Personally, I love talking vaccines. <laughs> well, and I would say ditto for the flu vaccine, too, because we're, we're approaching that season. Absolutely. And I know that it feels like we've been talking about vaccines for uh, a solid year, but just to put a plug in for that one as well. That one that one can also cause similar concerns in a pregnant patient. I definitely Absolutely. agree. Um, and I am a little bit concerned with kind of the lack of having some of the um, infection last year that this may come back with a vengeance here this year. <laughs> I think we're all worried about oh, that. I think we're already and, seeing some of that here locally as well. And it's important to, to recognize that we've been giving and recommending flu vaccines mm -hmm. to pregnant people for a very, very long time. That's not something new. That's something I remember doing in mm -hmm. residency a million years ago. So maybe not a million, but pretty close. Mm -hmm. um, so don't hesitate to get that flu vaccine. And mm -hmm. if you're allergic to eggs, there's an egg-free version. Yep. We can we can get you. Just get yep. that vaccine. So probably the only thing during pregnancy, which I'm sure you would probably agree with, is we don't recommend getting the nasal um, the live flu. virus right. vaccine. Right. Yep. Um, any of the injectable versions are perfectly acceptable to get, but we that is the one that we would not recommend getting for that particular uh, variant of that. And and that's just kind of a general rule. The right. live virus vaccines right. we're a little more cautious with Correct. in pregnancy. So and yes. COVID is not one of them. And COVID is not one of them, <laughs> and it will not change your baby's DNA. <laughs> Correct. Not at all. <laughs> And I think one of the other things that I had seen um, on the uh, clip that we had just shown there that I think they kind of pointed out in the text at the end is that we give some of these vaccinations during pregnancy, yes, not only to protect mom, but then we also get a little bit of that passive immunity for baby. Um, and I would say for sure that's the kind of the concept behind the Tdap for tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis. That goes along with the same concept there for influenza, but I would say also shares that same component with COVID. Um, and right now, um, I think there is currently research in the process. I think they have submitted for FDA approval for the age five to 11, mm -hmm. but even right now, we do not have anything for the under five age group. And so mm -hmm. that's just an additional reason, especially for patients who have younger kiddos at home, 
get that COVID vaccination taken care of so that you know, if you are pregnant, that'll give that kiddo a little bit of that protection until they are able to get that when it does eventually, hopefully come out. Come out for the, yes. Great point. <clears throat> There's a caller from Pierre who wonders, what puts a teen, a teenage female at greater risk, a pregnancy or birth control pills? Larissa, that's a that's a great <laughs> OBGYN question. So I would say, uh, generally, we would say a pregnancy is going to pay, put a patient at a higher risk for complications. Um, there are some data that we look at kind of in our field of gynecology that rates um, safety of some of the varying methods of contraception um, for patients with certain chronic health conditions. Um, and any of those, even when you're looking at some of the um, more significant complications that can occur as a chronic medical condition, um, any of the contraceptives are going to provide benefit from being considered to be a lower risk uh, than um, pregnancy. Here's a question from Brookings, uh, and I'm gonna throw this to Dr. Saul because this is one that, uh, that is more pregnancy specific. How do sexually transmitted diseases affect babies? Well, it depends on which, which sexually transmitted disease that we're talking about. Uh, typically, the ones that are bacterial, gonorrhea and chlamydia, uh, being, they tend to be more local. Certainly with gonorrhea and chlamydia, you can have some systemic issues that, that can occur like joint pain and arthritis and things like that. But generally, those, those are the ones that um, will, will irritate and inflame the cervix, can lead to preterm contractions, preterm labor, etc. There are others uh, such as uh, herpes that can cause in, in utero infection, so an intrauterine infection in the fetus, as well as a neonatal or a newborn infection if it is not uh, known to be active at the time of a vaginal delivery. So it, in general, um, you know, the, the sexually transmitted diseases don't um, don't cause uh, clinic clinical physical effects on the baby, although some of them can. It tends to be more related to what's happening, whether it's causing the preterm labor, as I mentioned, or an infection that's passed to the baby at the time of birth. And it depends too on how recent the infection was. So with the example of herpes, for an example, is it, the first time that that herpes infection has has presented itself, or is that something that has been, you know, that, that that was diagnosed many years ago and is now recurring? All of those things play a role in what the impact is on both the pregnancy as well as as well as the fetus. And certainly, HIV and hepatitis C can impact a baby and can become chronic diseases for the baby. So. Um, that can be a big deal. Things that we don't see quite so much here in South Dakota, but I imagine you see a fair bit there in Minneapolis. Absolutely, and absolutely. And with the treatments that are currently available uh, to treat mom, 
uh, we we have the ability to protect uh, the baby with, to some degree better than we were even when I was was training in particular with HIV and hepatitis. But those are all things that your doctor or your provider will need to know about, whether it's something that is in your remote history or whether it's something that that is currently active so that it can be acted upon and addressed uh, during the pregnancy and during the delivery. And a lot of those are also things that we will kind of test as part of a, an initial OB visit. When patients present to us for care, um, we will very commonly make, make sure that we know for sure what mom's blood type is. We usually test for um, rubella, syphilis, hepatitis B and C, HIV, chlamydia and gonorrhea. Um, and we have results for all of that. Obviously, if patients are ever concerned about a change in the potential infection status that we, they would have during the pregnancy, we would like to know about that. Um, and then as she had mentioned, making sure that you're upfront with your provider so that if you do have a history of herpes, um, that your provider is aware of that. And we will normally then also recommend that patients take a medication um, starting at about 36 weeks to decrease the likelihood of there being an active infection that could increase the risk for that transmission to baby. Another viewer from Mitchell wants to know, what is considered a healthy weight gain for a pregnant woman? Larissa. I would say a lot of that depends on the patient's starting um, BMI or body mass index, which is kind of calculated based on the patient's weight um, and height. Um, for a patient of uh, normal body mass index, so um, I would say 18 to 25, we'll usually recommend 25 to 35 pounds. If we're getting to the 25 to 30 range for the BMI, we'll usually recommend 15 to 25 pounds. And if we are 30 for a BMI or above, we'll usually recommend 11 to 20 pounds. Um, I think there have been um, some studies that have investigated if that needs to be modified to more of a zero to 20 pounds, but the current um, ACOG or American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists is still recommending that 11 to 20 pounds. We have a question from someone on Facebook, and this is obviously someone who has an above no average knowledge of, of pregnancy, and uh, what is CMV and how can it be prevented? I'm gonna ask you that one, Lisa. CMV is cytomegalovirus, and it is, it is a, uh, a viral infection that can be passed to a fetus and cause um, physical findings in that fetus that, that we can see often on the ultrasound, um, whether that is findings of, of certain structures that we can see in the brain and the liver. Um, sometimes we can see different, different fluid accumulation that, that occurs as a result of cytomegalovirus. <laughs> There's a reason we call it's it CMV. Right? <laughs> I know, right? It's easier to do it that way. Um, the interesting thing about CMV is that many of us, by the time we have reached adulthood, have already been exposed uh, to CMV and, and may have had an infection that, that went unnoticed. Um, it is something, though, that it, it, as a primary infection, as I was mentioning before, like a herpes, a CMV is a primary infection in pregnancy can have um, impacts on the fetus. So it's important that if we see certain ultrasound findings, as an example, that we are that we are 
that we determine is CMV one of the things that that could be causing what we're seeing on the ultrasound, and then we do the the, the due diligence to to determine is this an acute infection? Is this something that this mom was exposed to a long time ago? And then move from there uh, to to treatments uh, depending on what the levels of CMV happen to be in the bloodstream at that time. It's a very potentially very important thing for moms and, and particularly for babies. Linda Schroll is the Executive Director of Working Against Violence Incorporated, also known as WAVY. Their mission is to create a community for survivors of domestic violence and to promote advocacy for them through support services. Prairie Doc reporter Esther Michael tells us the reality of what pregnant women may undergo. The first statistic I want to start with, though, is just one that I think is really important, and that is um, uh, intimate partner violence, homicide. Actually, homicide from an intimate partner is the number one cause of death for a pregnant woman, and I think that that is just appalling and, um, and something that does really make us stand up and take notice, right? That's why it's so important that we can get some help for, for, our, um, for our, our women. Um, and then with that, they're a lot more likely to be killed by a firearm as well. So that, that's an important fact too, I think. Um, of that, 50 to 77% of women who are abused before um, pregnancy are going to continue to be abused during pregnancy and also that prepartum um, time. Um, uh, the abuse doesn't stop and that totally makes sense if you think about that because it's all about um, power and control. It's about um, the offender. It's never about the survivor. It's always about the offender. And a lot of times they really need that. They want that power, they want that attention. So anytime something starts happening that might increase the likelihood that the survivor can get help, like going to a prenatal appointment, right? Um, anytime that they can limit their isolation and increase their opportunity to get services, the offender's going to then react. Director Schroll says in the beginning of a pregnancy, both partners usually share the excitement of having a baby. However, that excitement may soon wear off as the baby requires more attention. This can create jealousy and increase the possibility of violence. Just when you think about pregnancy and you think of the times that you go to, um, you know, in a normal pregnancy, 12 to 14 times you're going to see your medical provider before you have birth. Um, to know how important um, for our medical providers to include the screenings to ask the questions, right? Bring up those questions, ask, because our, our, our survivors are a lot more likely to talk to you if you bring it up and talk to them, right? Bring it up, make it part of your normal conversation, and then they'll ask. And if you are a friend or a family member, know the signs, right? Know the signs, reach out, stand up, say something, do something, but help them know that, that you are a safe person that they can go to and depend on. Abuse takes many different forms. Isolation may breed emotional or physical abuse. These are important factors to identify within an abusive relationship. Director Schroll says the use of code words is a crucial form of communication to seek help through a friend or family member. Get help. Know you matter, know you're valued, know there is help. You can always call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline, which is 1-800-799-SAFE. 
S-A-F-E. If you're in the Rapid City area, you can always call Wavy at our 24-hour crisis line, which is 1-605-341-4808. But just know there's always somebody there to help. So no matter where you are, you can call the national hotline. They can connect you to a resource next to, you know, close to you. Um, you can reach out to a counselor. You can reach out to um, your physician. That is, medical professionals have the resources to be able to connect you. So ask, know that you, you know, that's a conversation you can and should have with your provider. You and your baby matter. I think that's such an important topic. I think uh, we don't talk enough and recognize enough the role that domestic violence can have in people's lives. Uh, and I know sometimes patients get very uncomfortable when we ask about that, mm -hmm. but um, I believe it's a pretty routine part of prenatal care to ask about domestic violence and safety. Is that something you and your staff ask about, Larissa? Nope, routinely, and I would completely agree. I would say especially with some of the um, recent stuff in the news here with the Gabby Petito case and some of the concerns that went um, around all of that. Um, even in the people that I associate with on a regular basis, I've been surprised. I've had a couple people that I know that have um, said that they were victims of domestic violence and I would have never in a million years guessed that. And so definitely an important topic for all people because you never know who it's going to affect. What I think you it's important too, uh, we were talking about mortality earlier and <clears throat> I think when we, when we talk about maternal mortality we tend to focus on that labor and delivery period mm -hmm. and, and a lot of the clinical preeclampsia, hemorrhage and those sorts of things that, that, that occur. Um, and the, the statistic that was just given about uh, domestic violence being a leading cause of death in pregnant women also highlights the need for us to, to, to begin to focus in that fourth trimester as well. Um, because as the, as the story in the clip mentioned, that's when the baby's here, the crying is happening, it's stressful, you're feeding, you're diapering, all of those things um, can, can escalate the stress too uh, in a family. And we, we are starting to see a shift of, fr away from deaths that are occurring in the hospital to deaths that are occurring in that first six months to a year after a baby is born. And I think it's it's an important conversation to, to begin having is how do we address the fourth trimester beyond the six week postpartum visit and then we're not seeing it, seeing that patient again potentially for another year um, for the next well woman check and how can we do those check-ins a little bit differently to, to get a, at this issue but also uh, the depression and, and suicide and, and those sorts of issues that impact uh, the, the mortality rates that we're seeing as well. And I think that that's such an important concept that when we look at maternal mortality Sometimes it's obvious, it's bleeding, it's infection, it's some kind of complication of, direct complication of the pregnancy or of the delivery. Uh -huh. But 
the, that pregnancy, that newborn, can increase those risks in other areas too that maybe you don't think about quite so directly, like domestic violence, like the depression, yep. overdoses, addiction. Um, uh -huh. It's a very stressful time in a, in a woman's life, in a family's life, and, and that's another area that needs more attention from our our culture and our society. I would definitely agree. I think um, what um, you guys have both mentioned with um, some of the th things that we normally think of as being major contributors, I think it's the fact that there is a measurable thing. You can do a lab, mm -hmm. you can look at a blood pressure measurement, you can look at some sort of objective um, number or value for something. And I think part of where some of these other issues get to be um, a lot more confusing to differentiate is because we don't always have a clearly measurable thing. Um, right. we, we have methods that we use to screen for depression and um, you know we can get a value from that, but every patient is so different, every experience that they have can be so different, and it can be very difficult from the side of the provider uh, to sometimes be aware of that too. So again, we would always just recommend that patients be um, upfront with us, let us know if they're having concerns about things and if there's anything that we can do to help whether that be with depression or with some sort of domestic violence type of situation. Uh, we have a question here from Winner about postpartum psychosis. What, what can you tell us about postpartum psychosis, Lisa? Well, postpartum psychosis is on the postpartum depression continuum, um, which starts with baby blues um, and, and leads to an actual depressive uh, episode or a time period. And psychosis is on the other end of that spectrum where um, it, it, it can, whether it's a result of a lack of sleep, whether it is the progression of depression that can lead individuals to feel as though they might actually harm their baby, they are losing a connection with, with what is what is real and what isn't. Um, it isn't an actual psychotic break that can occur in in after in the in the postpartum period. And I think what we find sometimes is that there's a general acceptance that some level of weepiness and, and sadness is completely normal. And we attribute that to just hormones after after a pregnancy, when in fact you, th there's no reason to have to, to just suffer through that uh, by yourself. And so uh, unfortunately, by the time it, it has progressed to psychosis, there's probably been weeks of uh, other warning signs and flags that sometimes women will just write off because it's it's been a general acceptance that that's a normal part of the postpartum period. Postpartum psychosis, <laughs> as well as depression, will require some level of intervention and treatment, particularly psychosis. Um, oftentimes that would require inpatient uh, treatment, but, but these are things too that, that no one needs to suffer through alone and, and should be discussed openly with a care provider to determine if there is something additional that is needed um, to, to provide assistance in that transition period. And postpartum psychosis is a, an emergency situation for mom and for baby, so it, it's something that needs to be taken very seriously by all of us. 
So um, we have uh, little time and more questions here. Uh, we have um, a question about over-the-counter and prescription medications and how do they affect your pregnancy, Larissa? Well, I would say it completely depends on which medications um, you are talking about. Um, there are a number of medications that um, obviously have been studied for a number of years and we feel safe prescribing during pregnancy. Um, I would say the general rule is whatever medication it is that you're looking at, um, talk with your provider to see if that is something, something that we um, know is acceptable for use in pregnancy. If that is safe, it is something that we would maybe be able to look for an alternate or whether it is something that we would definitely not recommend that patients take. Um, it's hard to do a specific answer to that just <laughs> because there is a very wide range of things. So that's and where I say it's just best except to Except to say to with the over-the-counters, please avoid the non-steroidals, ibuprofen and Motrin, unless Correct. that's been specifically prescribed for, for a particular reason and time period by, by your uh, provider. Uh, Those we are bad we for often right. prescribe a baby aspirin mm -hmm. um, a day, which is a very different dose. And again, that would be something that, um, although it's over the counter to have that conversation with, with your provider before starting that on your own. I would definitely agree. Ten, ten second, quick, Larissa, take home message. Um, I would say talk with your provider. Be open with whomever it is that you're receiving your care from. Get your vaccinations. Lisa, Be healthy. <laughs> ten se five second, take home message. I would say the same. It's your pregnancy. It's your baby. And so your doctors are here to, to help you and, and listen to the things that concern you and, and what, what your preferences are during your pregnancy. So take advantage of that. Take advantage. Trust your provider. The winner of our drawing tonight is Lorraine from Brookings. Thank you, Lorraine, for asking a question during the first 20 minutes of the show. You will be receiving a gift. And we'll be right back after this. Medicine, we routinely ask people about their family health history. Knowing that your mother had diabetes or that your grandfather battled alcoholism helps us be alert for health conditions to which you may be predisposed. Sometimes though, what is revealed by those histories isn't a medical problem, but a family tragedy. Earlier in my career, my older patients commonly told me that their grandmother or even their mother died in childbirth. Today, it is all too easy to forget just how dangerous it can be to be pregnant. In the early 1900s, nearly one mother died for every 100 live births. Even today, approximately 800 women around the world die from pregnancy-related causes every day and a woman's lifetime risk of dying as a result of pregnancy hovers around one in 200. In some countries, that risk is around one in 20. 
In others, it is less than one in 10,000. Infants and their older siblings face a grim future without those mothers. Many infants don't survive to their first birthdays. Older siblings have an increased risk of death before age five. Although most maternal deaths occur in the developing world, where access to trained birth attendants or clean birthing conditions is limited, the United States ranks disturbingly high among developed nations. In fact, our rates were higher in 2017 than in 2000. A woman's risk of death varies with her age, education, socioeconomic status, and most dramatically, race. Black women face a risk of pregnancy-related death more than triple that of white women, and indigenous women face approximately twice the risk. Wealth, health, and education are not enough to close those gaps. Serena Williams and Beyonce have both spoken publicly about their own life-threatening pregnancy complications. More research is needed to understand and address these disparities and maternal mortality rates in general. Sometimes death is caused directly by a pregnancy. Bleeding, eclampsia, embolisms of amniotic fluid into the mother's lungs, infections. Sometimes death results from the added stress of pregnancy combined with another disease. Weakened hearts, for example, may not meet the additional demands of pregnancy and delivery. Historically, influenza has killed disproportionate numbers of pregnant women. My own great-grandmother was one of them. Similarly, a pregnant woman who contracts COVID is 20 times more likely to die than one who doesn't. Women who struggle with depression or substance abuse may fall victim to overdoses or suicides triggered by the stress of pregnancy and caring for a newborn. Domestic violence may start or escalate during pregnancy, and too many women die at the hands of current or former partners. The good news is that nearly two-thirds of maternal deaths are thought to be preventable. We simply need the societal will to make changes and save lives. Thank you to our guests, Larissa and Lisa, for volunteering their time to help us learn more about protecting moms and their babies. We're gearing up for another flu season, which we hope is as mild as last year's. Why was that, and what can we do to repeat it? Here's Prairie Doc, Dr. Jill Cruz. Well, last year was a very unusual year for influenza, and actually one that uh, physicians across the nation were bracing for. We're like, oh, how are we gonna fight this battle on two fronts? Fighting both influenza that we know hits and ramps up every winter and COVID at the same time. But thankfully, we were wrong. It was a very mild year for influenza. And if you look at the graph, the uh, numbers of cases in South Dakota for influenza was practically flat, where the year before we had a record peak. So that was a huge improvement from previously. Why that happened? There are a couple things that we think went on. It definitely wasn't for lack of testing. We did tons of influenza testing, and we can test and know the difference between COVID 
and influenza. Now, if you look on someone drinking a can of pop, you can't tell the difference between Coke and Pepsi by looking at it. COVID and influenza have very similar symptoms, but lab tests can tell the difference specifically. Just like if you taste a can of Pepsi versus a can of Coke, you know the difference as soon as you take a sip. They are different viruses, those are different pops. The lab can tell the difference between the two. So we know that it wasn't mistaking one for the other. But we do know that there was a lot fewer cases, a lot fewer deaths, and a lot of it I think has to do with what we were doing. We were wearing masks, we were washing our hands, we were wiping down and cleaning surfaces more than we had ever done before. So all of these things together have given us a lot of protection against influenza. And the other thing we can do is get our flu shot. Last year was one of the highest years for influenza vaccinations ever, and we can keep doing that. That's our best way to protect against serious illness, hospitalization, and death. The good news is we can also give your COVID vaccine and your influenza at the same time, which is wonderful. So they don't have to be separated. Initially, we were saying we should, out of an abundance of caution, now recommendations are they can be given together. So the other thing we're working on is if you need to be tested, we can test for both influenza and COVID with the exact same swab. So we only have to swab your nose once. It's the front of the nose swab. It's not the one that goes all the way back and tickles the brain. So it's a wonderful way to test for both. So you can tell, are you drinking Coke? Or are you drinking Pepsi? Do you have COVID? Do you have influenza? So we will know which one is which and we can get you on the right medication that's appropriate for you. We invite you to tell us how this program has made a difference in your life. Please email or mail your story to the addresses on the screen. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper and be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for joining us as we celebrate our 20th season of truthful, tested, and timely medical information. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, until next time, stay healthy out there, people. Our bodies often heal from cuts and sores with few scars. When they don't, they may require medical attention, wound care. Next time, On Call with the Prairie Doc, celebrating our 20th season. Truthful, tested, and timely medical information for 20 seasons from the Prairie Doc. Hello, my name is Dave Hank, and I serve on the board of the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3 charity that secures funding for Prairie Doc programming. This year we celebrate 20 seasons of dedication, beginning with our founder, the late Dr. Rick Holm, and continuing today with our four Prairie Docs and all who volunteer their time to answer important health questions each week. Significant funding is required to produce and distribute our video, radio, and print programs throughout the region. Your financial support will help us continue the Prairie Doc legacy. On behalf of the Healing Words Foundation Board, I ask you to join us in our mission. Please go to prairiedoc.org and click on the donate button today. Thank you. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by
Avera is a proud sponsor of On Call with the Prairie Dock on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Dock as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society, Peer District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Lake Ponset Saline Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swiftel Communications.